This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 22 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. And you got plenty of juice in your iPhone, yeah? Good. You've done this before, I can tell. Just let's see where it goes. You know, if there's areas you're not comfortable with, fine. We can edit that stuff out. It says recording disabled to record voice memos and call. Yeah, I am so illiterate when it comes to technology. Like right now, I don't even know how to get back to you. Hold on a second. Hey, no problem. I will follow your lead. That's the voice of Steve Moon, independent director and producer of movies in Birmingham, Alabama. I first met Steve after placing a Facebook advert for one of the episodes of On Another Track. The great thing about Steve is that he doesn't mind tackling those tough subjects. He's been in the industry for 20 years and his latest movie, Out of the Fight, shows how veterans try to cope with returning home after being in places like Afghanistan. What I loved about Steve was his grittiness, but also his honesty. And that really does come through in this interview and also in his movies. And if you've ever thought of a career in the film industry, Steve has great advice. Stay listening. My first question was, who's Steve Moon? And what does an independent director and film producer do? You mean there are people out there that don't know Steve Moon? Come on. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Uh, I hope this goes worldwide then because I don't think anybody knows um, Steve Moon. Uh, let's see. Well, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. And what I do for a living is I bring movies to the state. I'm friends with producers from all over, even across the pond, even though you're not across the pond, you're just across the border. Absolutely. Uh, but um, so I bring movies to the state. I produce and direct movies, uh, getting ready to do a faith based Christian film uh, coming out. I don't want to say who's attached to it yet until everything is completed, but we're, we're doing that. And I love how God brings people together. Cause like you said, it just uh, out of the blue. I, I know a lot of it has to do with algorithms because I have been on other talk shows and now all of a sudden podcasts are starting to show up, Yeah. but I don't respond to all of them. I just, the ones that, that I like the titles and uh, your title sounded really catchy and impressive. And I was like, well, let's reach out to this guy. But, uh, and I, and I direct, I direct movies for a living and um, out of the fight is not my latest film, but it's my latest film that's out right now. We have two others that are in post-production or we're doing what's called a deliverable. We're doing deliverables for the uh, distributors. So that that's what I do and that's where I am. Wow, fantastic. And that blows me away because when you traditionally think about films in America, you know, especially from the other side of the Atlantic, we always think of California and LA and that being the center of film production. What was your kind of perspective on being in Birmingham, Alabama? Was that a kind of conscious choice? I mean, clearly you were born there, as you indicated earlier on. But what was it? Did you not feel the pull to go to Cali and be in the LA world or you were just different, coming from a different perspective? Uh, maybe from a different perspective because uh, number one, to, to get started, I've always been creative. I was, I've always been a writer. You know, I wrote my first little book in the first grade, which is still in my elementary school, but I always, I was just rooted. I was rooted at home, rooted in my faith. And I knew that knowing the business as I got older, especially after college and things like that, is I knew you can film anywhere, especially in the 90s and 2000s. Nothing was really being filmed in Hollywood except for major studio productions. But for the most part, they weren't even being produced out there. So in the mid 2000s, when I really got into it full time, I realized that it's all about the tax incentive. It's can you make a movie for, you don't want to say for the cheapest, but for your investors, and Alabama has a 35% tax rebate. So that means anybody that you hire in Alabama, investors get 35% at the end. We call it a show, not a movie. So at the end of the show, um, they they write off the or they get the 35% tax rebate from the state. So I had met some producers that are like brothers to me now out in LA. And they're like, I didn't know anybody was making movies in Alabama. I'm like, well, I've done several independent films that 
have gotten me recognition, you know, some for, you know, let's what not to do category, but some in, Hey, he's making movies. He's, he's making strides. So uh, I, I, I convinced they came to one of my friends came to Mobile, Alabama on the coast. And uh, they made a movie called USS Indianapolis men of courage starring Nicholas cage. And so he calls me to come work on that. And after it was over, I was like, you guys need to come to Birmingham because I've got crew up here that is bigger. Uh, I, I can get you free stuff. Uh, I can help you produce. And so they started coming to Birmingham, loved the crew, loved the atmosphere, loved everything about Birmingham. So they've been coming to Birmingham ever since. And we'll do four or five movies at a time in Birmingham, Alabama. And obviously it's distributed by studios and distributors. But yeah, it's just, it's just never been a thing for me to go out to California and become a waiter like everybody else. And then, um, produce a movie and then go wait tables in between movies. I mean, I can do that here. So now I'm doing it full time and I don't wait tables. And I love that can do attitude that you have. Cause the impression I got to you from you was you love to cross boundaries a little bit. I think that's the, the impression I get from you. You're not frightened to tackle the two taboo subjects. Why is that? Uh, you know, because, because, because it's in my heart. It's just, I guess, you know, I've been through a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I went through a bad divorce, uh, not that I wanted, but I went through a bad divorce and that led me to, you know what, I, I'm, I've got to have an outlet. So I just started just pounding the pavement and doing more, but see, I'm also a historian. I'm a historian. I love to write about anything that either is factual based or history based, or at least if I do a fiction movie, there is going to be some reference to history and I like doing things that other people aren't doing because anybody can pick up a camera, do an independent film and go to the festivals. That's fine. And I don't knock those at all because I do that, but I'm also going to be the one, like I told my wife yesterday and she agreed. I'm the one that if it can't be done, I'm going to do it. Um, we're, we're in pre-production of a movie now, another show in Birmingham. It's a big budget show and there is an amusement park. I don't want to say the name of that either, but there's an amusement park. And they're like, man, it'd be awesome if we could get that amusement park for like a day and we could shoot. But I, I know with COVID and all this kind of stuff, it's impossible. I'm like, hold on a second. Now you're telling me it's impossible. I go out with one of my partners and she and I go over there, knock on the door, shake their hands, do the Alabama thing. And they, they said, yeah, you can use the amusement park. We're not even going to charge you. We'll charge you what it's going to do, uh, our cost. But we don't want to make any money. We just want to help you guys. So, so that's me. If it can't be done, call me and, and it will be done. I promise. So yeah, so that's, I, I like tackling sensitive subjects because I'm not very politically correct because I believe in treating everyone equal, whether it's equally good or equally bad. I, I want to treat everybody the same. I tell people I grew up in the eighties, seventies and eighties. I'm 50 years old. I was woke before woke was a thing because all my friends were either black, white, Chinese, Hispanic. I had friends of all kinds, but I didn't have to prove anything. We just all grew up together. And so uh, those guys are all far more successful than I am, but we still keep in touch and we joke about it because it's like, we, we don't have to get on the internet to prove, hey, here's my token friend. You know, I've been the token white guy so many times. It was never token. It was just, hey, I'm just, I'm just happened to be white and you happen to not be white. So anyway, I like, um, I say all that to say this and then I'll hush. We had a film that we had an investor from India. It was called Cotton. It was uh, set in the deep, dirty South black neighborhood of Cotton Avenue. And the main character was white. And there were three other white characters, including Amy Mann from uh, the singing group uh, Till Tuesday. She had a small role in it, but it was about exposing dirty politics. But if you're a white guy and you're a paramedic and you're in the hood uh, because that area is the hood and you expose corruption and your boss is black, are you a racist or do you let the corruption go and continue to say li save lives as a paramedic? So I just like doing things that most people won't touch because they're afraid to. Like, uh, why not? It's a tough subject, isn't it? Because it's currently very hot. But I'm a bit like you. I love to touch those subjects that are a little bit too controversial because I want people to talk about them, but not necessarily get upset about it. Just have a perspective, give your angle on it, you know, but let's have a discussion. Let's throw it into the middle of the ring and just see where that goes and what our feelings are. But where do you think most of the fear comes from? Um, from the masses. You know, we uh, we as Americans, we as a human population in the Western society, anyway, we, we follow the mob. We have a mob mentality 
And whatever somebody says, if it's the popular opinion, we're going to follow it because I don't know when we started getting offended. You know what? I'm bald. I'm not offended by that. You can call me bald all day long. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm offended by being bald. You know, <laughs> Hey, Hey, I thought we had a plan here, but it's just, it's the mob mentality. And I think people, I think people, and it goes back to the sin nature. People by nature are angry and they have all this anger that's festered and social media brings that out because now, like yesterday, I was looking at, um, a basketball player, an NBA player, had had apparently had some death threats, and so it's like, where is all this coming from? And and again, and there's also no accountability, and that goes from the top down. There's no accountability in politics. There's no accountability in the wealth, um, wealthy society. Because I want to sidebar this, I'm also raising the money for a movie about human trafficking, and what I found by working with one of the task force. Uh, in, in the lower 48, I won't say which city or which state, but there's a task force. And um, these kids that are being sold into sexual slavery, for lack of a better word, the biggest weekend for sex trafficking in America is Super Bowl Sunday. And they know the NFL players that are doing this, but because of their agents, because of their wealth, because of who they are, they can't arrest these people. So until we start arresting and holding people accountable and we do away with this woke PC society. And again, I'm not trying to discount anyone because I respect anyone's lifestyle, but until we hold people accountable for doing things that are illegal, I don't care what your status is. I don't care if you're Hunter Biden and I don't care if you're whatever Trump's son was, if you're corrupt, you're going to jail. Let's make an example. But we, we kind of live and die by those that we embrace with similar backgrounds and ideologies as we do, but that's not what this world is about is the world is about our differences and embracing our differences and saying, you know what, I'll still shake your hand and cook dinner for you tonight. I just don't have to like what you're doing. I love that approach. And that's very kind of uh, enterprising for somebody traditionally from the South, because, you know, I have to be honest with you, somebody from the UK like myself, you always get this stereotypical image of the North and the South of North America, you know, down in the Southern states, it's very racist, it's very pro-white, you know, all the things that we, we kind of see, and we believe that. But what's really been refreshing talking to you this morning, Steve, is that you're not like that in any way. So how, how you know, I mean, but, but, you know, it's the naivety of it, isn't it? You know, it's what we believe, what we get fed on the media. So why are you so different? What's in your background that made you so different? Well, um, the way I was raised, really, being raised in the 70s in the South, I was raised by Democrats, and that was when Democrats were pro-family Democrat, and there was nothing wrong with being pro-family Democrat. I was raised, I was uh, saved at a young age as Christian, and and I tell everybody, I'm a, what would Jesus do? Jesus didn't die for America. He died for the entire world, according to John 3, 16. And that means he loved everybody. And so I just have this compassion for human beings. And I've always liked the underdog because I've been an underdog my whole life. And I like helping people. So, um, and that's all I do films in Alabama is I like to help create jobs here so that locals that are wanting to get into the business can get into it. But no, um, like you were talking about stereotyping the South, the two things I want to touch base on real quick is I have, uh, I have, I have an executive producer in Los Angeles. His name's Ron black guy and we're old school. So it's black guy. And so he flies in about eight or nine years ago to Alabama. And he's like, well, Steve, am I going to get uh, lynched? Am I going to get mobbed? Like, dude, we have a magazine called Birmingham magazine. And on the cover this month happens to be a biracial couple with their biracial child. Birmingham and Alabama is way past that. It's going to be like anywhere else that you go. You're going to have extremes on both ends. But for the most part, you can do anything you want to except for insult Alabama football. You know, when you do that, they're going to turn on you. But the other the other thing I was going to say, uh, hold on, bear with me. Um, I had a mild, yeah, no worries. That's okay. I had a mild stroke uh, four years ago. It takes me a while to retrieve what I'm trying to think. Oh, no, no pressure from my end, you know, that, oh, yeah. so just take your time. All right. And the second thing that I was going to talk, oh yeah. And the second thing that I was going to talk about is last year when it was popular to take down any monuments that had to do with racism back in the day. I get that. I understand that. And I wouldn't want those statues up no matter what my color is, 
just like if I was a Jew living in Germany, I wouldn't want any statues of Hitler or any of his men. It's like it did represent a time. Yeah. That it was bad. I know it's a part of history. Put him in the museum. Yeah. I'll go to a museum and I'll look at Hitler stuff all day long. And the SS, my grandfather uh, discovered after he died, uh, was actually, uh, we found his swastika in his armband. He lived in Germany, but he came to America. They had forced him into, you know, because back in the day there, there was the draft and you really had no choice but to become a Nazi. Yes. So anyway, I think that was part of it too, is you just, you love everybody. And here's where I'm going with that. In the South, people are always like, well, what these Confederate flags, they represent racism. No, good old boys in the South love their Southern heritage because good old boys in the South fight for everything. They don't care if they lose, but they're going to fight if they believe in something. So that's why I think so many news stations, especially news on the left, last year wanted to vilify the, the, the flag, uh, the South, the monuments. And it's like they're not standing up for racism they're not standing up for slavery they're not justifying anything they're just like look we fought this war we fought the civil war so we have pride didn't care what it was about we just fought it and and i think so you get a lot of bad stereotypes because i was explaining to another black friend of mine from la that there's a hierarchy in the white community that will range from, you know, you got your trailer park trash, your white trash, your rednecks, your good old boys. I was just going through the whole hierarchy. And I was like, aside from maybe the lower end of the scale, a good old boy and a redneck doesn't care what color you are. If he sees you in a bar, he's going to shake your hand. If you, if he has a daughter and somebody's picking on his daughter, he's going to be the first one to go take care of business. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, so I just like de-stereotyping things also, but like you said a minute ago, I also like touching on subjects that are really sensitive so that you can make them non-taboo because the more we can talk about issues like John Travolta, John Travolta, when he came out as bald, Hey, it's not taboo anymore. You know, everybody knew you were wearing a wig, but now you're taking your wig off and you're showing the world that you and Bruce Willis are indeed bald. It's not taboo. So let's talk about issues to discuss them rather than beat each other up over our differences. That's a really interesting point you make, because for a lot of people, especially when you're younger, talking about the taboo subjects, especially if it's about you personally, you know, maybe the way you are sexually, maybe the way you are in terms of your features, maybe the, your point of view is really tough, isn't it? It's a really difficult place to get to when you're much younger. But what happens when you get older? Do you just throw off the shackles? Is that what you find now? I think you have to. And you're always going to be stuck with this younger crowd because I was talking about out of the fight the other day mm -hmm. with a gentleman out of Chicago. And we were talking about generations. And are we living in a generation now where I call them sissies? You know, no offense to anybody. It's just you're a sissy, you're a sissy. You know, <laughs> um, are we raising a generation that would not fight and die for this country, would not fight and die for freedom? But then he pointed out, this has been going back since the 1920s, during the Roaring Twenties, then the 30s and 40s, then you have the 50s where, hey, my generation is all rock stars. But if you look at it, there's going to be bits and pieces of all generation that are not going to be the ones like the greatest generation that fought World War II. But I guarantee you, in the 40s and 50s, they were still the ones that were like, I'm not a part of this. I'm, I'm rebelling uh, like they did in the 60s. But even in the 60s, you still had people that were willing to fight. So um, I just think any younger generation needs to just open their eyes and realize that I don't even like the word woke, that just because you disagree with someone's politics or political views doesn't give you the right to hate them or shame them. And I see too much of that. I see too much of conservatives. And I'm not a conservative by any means, but I see too much of conservatives aren't allowed on college campuses. And if they do, boy, they're almost lynched. They're just hated. And this is by the group that is supposed to be tolerant. Yeah. And I just had to pull myself away from that. And just like, I'm just going to put it out there. And if it offends you, that's on you. It's not on me because truth is truth is truth is truth. No matter how you want to interpret it to fit your agenda. Listen, I want to take us on a little bit of a journey and I want to give the listeners a bit of a picture of you. So take us back. Uh, you know, you talked about your background in writing and how you started writing at a very young age. What was the inspiration for that? Where did that lead in your early age? 
Uh, early age, my mom would always read to me. She was, um, well, she wasn't a teacher back then. She didn't become a teacher until I was in high school, but, but she would read to me and I grew up on like Shel Silverstein. And so, um, I started writing poems and even all through high school and college, I was just constantly writing kids poetry. Just, you know, my dad lost his job when I was 13 and had to work nights. So I never really saw him anymore. So writing was an outlet. Uh, and then when I went to college, I didn't know what I wanted to major in, um, just didn't have any guidance or anything like that, but I knew I was creative. So I just started writing and one day, and I say one day, uh, in around 1995, is this too loud? Do I need to go in? Can you hear? Yeah, I can hear something, but I'm not sure what it is. It's, it's rain. I can go in if we oh, need to. don't worry. No, okay. don't worry. It's great sound effects. Got it. All right. So um, uh, after I graduated college, I decided, you know what? I want to write music videos for country music videos that were coming out, but also want to write scripts. So I wrote a script and send it to about nine different agencies out in Los Angeles. And the next thing you know, two years later, there's a movie called Firestorm starring Howie Long that came out. And I told my then wife, because I was still married then, that's my movie. She agreed. So we went to go see it in Birmingham. And lo and behold, it was an action version of the drama that I had written down to some of the characters' names. They were still used and some of the nicknames were used. So I knew it was my film. So I tried to sue. I had three different lawyers from the Writers Guild of America but they said, who are you going to sue? You have nine different agencies with how many employees, with how many disgruntled employees, how many former employees. So I couldn't prove who did what. So they told me, all right, if you want to come out here to California, you know, wait tables, like I said earlier, and um, try to sell your projects, or you can do independent films. Fast forward two more years, 1999, I met with the director of Boys Don't Cry and her director of photography, and they gave me some ideas uh, and suggestions on how to make independent films. You kind of horse trade and barter with actors, with gear, with people that are coming up uh, in the business. And so I made my first movie that came out in 2001 called Under the Sidewalk Moon. Not a good movie by any means, but we made a movie. And that movie got me recognized, or not the movie, the fact that I made a movie got me recognized by the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival because the liaison found me online because I had a screening in Tus neighboring Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And she, uh, she's from, she's from Tuscaloosa, but she's in New York. And she said, I didn't know anybody in Alabama was making movies. So she introduces me to the industry. She's like, I'm going to hook you up with George Clooney, Chris Rock, Jennifer Aniston. You're going to come out to Vegas. You're going to do a red carpet event and I'm going to hook you up. My then wife said, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> So are you serious? <laughs> so I, I think I think that led to the divorce because I mean she absolutely did not support it, but that's another story. My my wife now does. So that's how I got into the business. And so one thing led to another, and it's such a small film community uh that everybody knows everybody. I have um an actor uh in um in London. I have a couple of visual effects people that are in that are in um India. And they all know each other, know each other. So it's such a small community. But if you're honest and you are loyal and you don't throw people under the bus and you just do basically what's right, then it's an easy business to work in and it's an easy business to stay in. That's a really interesting concept on in it because, you know, as the the person, Joe Public, as I call it, in the street, you don't realise the film industry is such a small industry, you know, and it's so connected. But when you just explained it there, well, there's only a certain amount of actors and there's only a certain amount of directors and producers. And really, like you say, it's all about connections and networking, isn't it? It's the same in any industry, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, we all know each other. And that's why you're saying uh, for people that don't know me, I was, I was joking because nobody knows me. No, I mean, Steve, Steven Spielberg is a household name. Steve Moon is not. But in L.A., it's like I'll get a phone call. Hey, can you help me produce you know, a $5 million movie with so-and-so uh, as the star? I'm like, yeah, so out there because it is such a small business and they want to film in a film friendly state with a nice tax incentive, then I'm the one that they come to, which I, which I love that. So um, it's taken 20 years to do it, but uh, I guess 12 years because the past eight has been total full-time career, which, which I'm blessed for that. And that's superb to hear that. But like you say, it's all about biding your time, 
putting the hard work in, isn't it? And just making those connections because one day, surreptitiously, it, it will happen. Absolutely. It's like us connecting. I would never have believed I would have got a text <laughs> or an email from you. And and it was just like blew me away. And I said to my uh, good lady yesterday, I said, I got two abusive texts, you know, off the back of my Facebook uh, advert. And then I got this third one, third time lucky. And Steve contacted me. And I thought, how is that? Third time's the job. <laughs> isn't that amazing? Wow. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Steve Moon, independent director and producer of movies in Birmingham, Alabama. Next, I wanted to ask the obvious question, what is the difference between a producer and a director? And if you're looking to start a career in the film business, what tips does Steve have? Uh, well, a director is the one that, and, and I'll answer it, you know, succinctly but but it may come across condescending i don't mean to a director is the one in charge that tells the actors this is what i like let's do it director is the one that is really calling all of the shots as far as what you see on screen um he works with a production designer he works with um the art director and people like that because when you look at any tv show or any movie then there is a whole team behind the scenes that made it look like that so like when i was doing out of the fight with joe walker Joe Walker is my director of photography that I've worked with since my first movie. So we've been together 20 years. He knows what I like as far as shooting. So a director will work with a, a DP is what we call him, a director of photography. And I'll be like, Joe, this is the shot I like. He'll be like, no, 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 no. You want this shot. Trust me. So I always come back <laughs> to what he likes. Same with a production designer. You know, if we want it to look a certain way, then like, let's say when we were doing out of the fight, here's a guy that is, um, a sergeant in the military that doesn't make a lot of money. His wife doesn't work. So you need to find me a location that looks like somebody that makes, you know, $28,000 a year, whatever the, their salary is. So now you need to make the inside of that house look like that. So you, you work with the same crew and the same team over and over that that's also directing. So you don't see that behind the scenes. You just see the movie and say, okay, that was a great movie. Um, but you don't really realize what all is entailed with the director. And it even comes down to your gaffer, which is your lighting guy or girl. I say lighting guy, but it doesn't matter. It can be anybody. Yeah. But your lighting person, um, you know, they'll be like, look, uh, you want this to be a more sensitive moment. We're going to put this color in. We're going to put this temperature in. And uh, we're going to do a little soft lighting here or harsh lighting there. So you really depend on your team as a director. Now, as a producer, your job can be like an executive producer. You bring in the funds or you find the money uh, to, to finance the project or to fund the project through equity or, you know, debt. Anyway, that's a different story. Or a uh, producer can be, hey, I found your crew. They're going to put all this together for you and they're going to give you what you want. So that, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. I am helping produce by getting the production office set up, getting all the locations, getting all the crew. And it's for a $5 million movie that we're shooting here. Uh, I don't know if officially I'm on board as a producer, but that's what a producer does. So they make it happen and we make it look like we want it to work as a director. That's that's a really great explanation. Thank you for that, because it's always very confusing when you see the credits at the end of the movie and you think, why do you have to have all these different people? But like you say, it's a, I, the way I look at it, it, movie making is like stitching a tapestry together, isn't it? Almost. Is that a fair description? I, yeah, I, I would say exactly that. And it does take a team. Um, it always doesn't take that big of a team because a lot of times if you have the big budget, you bring on more people. But but you you can do you can do a lot with a little. And, and I think that's what the past couple of films I've worked on is, you know, you're trying to save money where you can. But if you work with the same team over and over and over, you don't need all these superfluous personnel on your on your team. So I wanted to just maybe illustrate to some of our listeners, you know, if they were thinking about a career in in movies or doing production or doing directing, where do you think somebody would start? What would be your recommendation of some of the key experiences they need, maybe qualifications? Where do they need to go to get on that, you know, on that train, so to speak? Uh, a couple of things, but they're all related to the same thing. Get your phone, get your iPhone, get whatever phone you have. Make a movie with your phone. You don't need uh, a red. You don't need... Um, uh, a black magic, especially don't get a, a black magic. I mean, black magic are good for commercials and things like that, but just get you whatever you can shoot on, get you some local talent, 
and everybody do it together. You know, I'll, I'll have, and this is kind of a sidebar, but I'll have local talent here. It'll be like, okay, I'm X number of dollars per day. I'm like, okay, but guess what? I can get somebody from like two broke girls for maybe $200 more a day than you're asking. She carries distribution. You don't. So a lot of times people will get offended. Like, well, that my, I'm worth more than that. Okay. But have you ever been to anything that's gotten distribution? Anything that has gotten your investors their money back? Well, no, we just, this is just like me and my friends. You know, I, I, I wait tables for a living. I always go back to that uh, stereotype. I, I wait tables for a living. Okay. Then you don't benefit me. And I don't mean that negative, but this is a business and I have to sell this movie in order for my investors to make their money back. If not, they're never going to work with me again. So find you, if you're an up and coming filmmaker, an actor, producer, director, all those things, and avoid film festivals. All film festivals are for people to get awards. Awards don't help you really get work. But the what helps you get work is proving that you can make a movie. Direct your own, produce your own, cast it with local actors that are trying to get known. Then what you do is when movies come to your state, you have a resume. It's called a reel, R-E-E-L. You have a demo reel that you can show people and then you can get a job because again, it's all who you know, but not in a negative way, because everybody, for the most part, is so friendly and loyal that if they say, wow, okay, your movie was crappy, but y'all did it, and you lit it beautifully, and you did this, they may not offer you a job as a director, but they're going to get you in the business. That's what I would do 100% of the time. Avoid festivals unless you just like, um, hey, we made a festival, and I can brag to all my friends. I've been to Con. We were accepted into Con. I don't tell people about that. It's no big deal. I'm telling you because I'm making a point. Yeah. Yeah, just get into the business. You know, make a movie, put yourself out there. Just do it. Just basically. do it. Absolutely. You, you've alluded to this point a couple of times. Tell me about loyalty and what that really means. Uh, all right. Loyalty is not the blind loyalty that people have to parties. <laughs> I will say that because I do get political. <laughs> loyalty is um, I've made so many mistakes on big films. I've made mistakes as prop master. I've made mistakes as art director. But everybody makes mistakes. You're not going to be perfect. So as long as you're trying and you're not throwing somebody on the bus and like, well, he told me to do it this way, uh, because I'll give you an example. I had a production designer from Los Angeles working in Mobile and I was working for them as their prop master. And he threw me under the bus so many times by telling, cause I was also, if I'm the local, if, if Steve can get it done, if anybody can get it done, we'll give it to Steve, he'll get it done. And so there was an incident that really was the straw that broke the back is he wanted me to go out and find some big, large industrial fans to bring to a set so that the crew wouldn't get hot. Well, uh, I said, I don't mind doing that, but if I do that, then, you know, this is a heavy prop day for me. What do I do? So he ended up emailing me that night and said, Hey, don't, don't go get those. It's not your job. Anyway, it is the job of the locations person. So I'm like, okay, that's fine, but I don't want to cause any trouble. He said, no, it's no trouble at all. Well, the next day, the production manager ringed me a new one, cussed me out. And was like, these things were supposed to be here. They're going to be in the shot. I said, I was told that they're not in the shot, that they were here just to cool off the extras and the, and the personnel. And there'd been so much just, backstabbing from the LA people to the locals and throwing the locals under the bus. Well, in the South, we're honest for the most part. Yeah. And I could have easily said, here's the email that came from my boss that told me not to do it. So I just said, you know what? I I'm done. If y'all want to keep talking to me this way, that's fine. But um, it got, it got heated, but I'm like, we don't do things like that here. And he's, he kept trying to get me uh, to say, well, who told you not to do it? I'm like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to rat him out. So loyalty is just, you want to be loyal to the job. You want to get the job done right. And as long as you do everything you can to get that job done right, they're going to hire you over and over. Uh, they'll call me and lay, my last name's Moon. Like, hey, Moon, can you see if Kevin Key's available or is Montana available or is Jen available? Because, again, they may make mistakes, but in the big scheme of things, a good director can, can work around mistakes. Like, oh, well, we forgot to give Nicolas Cage – his watch. Uh, and it was in the other scene that we shot the other day. And this is the pickup shot for that director will be like, okay, I just won't show the watch. So uh, mistakes happen. So 
that's where the loyalty comes in. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. I really like that. It was a uh, because yeah, a lot of people get confused by loyalty, that kind of love loyalty or just being loyal because you have to be loyal. Yeah, no. it's like say loyal, loyalty to the job. I like that expression. That was the important bit, and you didn't rat somebody out. But that's a real judgment call sometimes, isn't it? It really is. It, it is, I, and and a lot of times they know who it is anyway. Yeah, but um, if you're not local they treat you like it's a rental car. You know, they're going to treat you bad because, oh, we're never going to see this guy again. We can just run all over him. <laughs> um, but yeah, those, those guys have reputations anyway. So you want to keep a good name for yourself because then when it comes down to it, they'll be like, Moon, no, I've never known him to do anything like that. So tell me about depression. Oh my gosh, depression. All right, I mentioned earlier about my bad divorce. I didn't want the divorce. She did for three years. I tried to get her to stop it's, it's hard to give a testimony without putting somebody else under so i, I, I don't i don't want to i don't want to say negative about her but for three years she didn't want me i'll say that and so i had two daughters one was seven and one was four and i told you my dad lost his job so he was never available for me when i was growing up and then my mom that's when she started uh, getting her teaching certificate was too tired to be there for me and my sister growing up so i vowed when i had kids that I was just going to be there for them no matter what. So uh, my divorce came in 0405. My daughters were seven and five, and I was there for them every, every, I mean, I just, I love my kids. And to this day, they're 24 and 20. And I just, I mean, they're my kids and I'll do anything for them. But the divorce was so bad and her hatred towards me was so bad. And again, it wasn't, all right, we're not going to get in the personal side. I, there was no reason for her to be mad at me other than the fact that I told people to get involved in what she was doing. So it would possibly stop. Uh, but no, so she hated me. So every time we'd go to court, I would go, I would take her back to court cause I want to see my kids and she would lie like a Persian rug. And I hope that offends Persian people. <laughs> but, um, she would just lie in court every single time said, no, he can see his kids whenever he wants to. He just doesn't ever want to. And she's sitting here test giving testimony in front of my kids while they're growing up and they're believing this. And meanwhile, as the crow flies, my kids are a mile, mile and a half, two miles away from me and I can't see them. And I'm literally begging. And it's like, no, and I'm a big Southern gospel and I love the Oak Ridge boys and people like that. And they never come to town. They never come to Alabama because Birmingham's not big enough, but the rare times that they do, can I take my girls? No. Can I take them to the park? No. Um, the tornado that devastated my small town of Pleasant Grove was an F5 tornado. Uh, it's probably been 10 years. So my stepdaughter was 14 at the time. I, I could take her to help do the cleanup. My kids, no, they're not going out there. They're, I'm like, okay, but it's still, it, 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 was, it was a mile wide. My town is three miles wide. It decimated the town. So literally every time I want to do something with my kids, no. Um, can, can I take them to go see Santa Claus? No. Meanwhile, they're being told, well, Carly, Abby, I don't know why daddy doesn't want to come to your birthday party. I'm not invited. So that was where my depression came from. And it was 18 hours a day um, on a couch. Just I could, couldn't move. My wife, self-employed, she'd get up in the morning. I'd get up with her, you know, mm -hmm. sit with her at breakfast or whatever. She'd go to work. I'd get on the couch. She'd come home. Yeah. I hear her pull in. I wake up and start unloading the dishwasher. That's how bad it was because I just, I mean, you took away the one thing that meant everything in the world to me. And um, now my, my 24 year old has two children, one's four and one's a few months old. I've seen my four year old granddaughter four times and I've not even met my grandson and I haven't seen Carly in four years. Wow. So she has nothing to do with me because of the brainwashing. Now, Abby, my 20 year old, she and I, she's in college and she is uh, doing well. She's a nursing student. She's a junior and she's rocking it. And she's like me. She saw right through what the lies were. Yeah. And, and she gave me a chance to see me through her own eyes. So I wrote a script called The Other Parent. Uh, and it was about depression and what the non-custodial goes through. But then I decided I can't make this self-serving. So I wrote another script out of the fight with Judy Norton from the TV show, the Waltons, oh, yes. because we wanted something bigger than us because I can always one man in the camera, the other parent, but out of the fight was so much bigger because I knew people with depression. My, my all committed suicide also in 04 when the divorce happened. So it was just, 
there were just so many things that were pulling me towards veterans because I'm a mentor in my community. I coach basketball and all this other kind of stuff in my community. So I see kids when they grow up and then they come back and you see that they're different. Uh, so that's, you know, that that's where that came. I'll leave it at that, but that's that's where that came from. And and thank you for going there, because I know I have a personal experience of what you're talking about being the other parent, you know, the one that doesn't have access to their kids. And it's a tough subject and it's one that's happening all, not all just in America or Canada, but all over the world and this alienation that's going on and the brainwashing. And it's so manipulative. But, you know, maybe that's a, a chat for another day. I don't know if you necessarily want to sort of dwell on that subject, but that would be something I'd love to come back to you. On. I would love that. I, I would love that. Absolutely. Please, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that because I'd love to talk about that movie as well once you get that up and running. Okay, let's talk about the movie that currently is out, Out of the Fight. And I'm really, this is very close to my heart, as I said in my text message. My father was in the British military for 22 years. He was an active service, Aden, Malaya, you know, Northern Ireland. He got shot at, you know. I mean, he his life was in danger a lot of the time. So I saw the end result when my dad came home from these tours. You know, I didn't know him when he first came home for his first tour. I was two years old. Yeah. Somebody had to explain, this is your dad, you know, and I'm carrying in the corner. So I, I do understand firsthand what that feels like. And I have two brothers who were in Afghanistan and Iraq as well who joined the military. Tell me why this really got you. What what was the thing that really drove you to do this movie? What was it? All right. Again, I see I'm not military and I want to put this out there also, not former military, but I'm also not that director that, oh, he's Hollywood or he's an independent film director. He knows nothing about what you guys went through overseas, but I know what it's like to, to have that feeling in your brain and in your heart. So I got that. But no, what made it is because I am such a patriot. I mean, even my first movie, under the sidewalk moon, the main character talks about patriotism. And I'm, I'm just so about patriotism because it's patriotism is almost a lost cause these days, unless you're in the military. And these guys literally, when you wake up, if you're overseas and you wake up and your job is not to die, that's your job. All right. My job is to write a script and to produce a script. I can handle my depression. But your job is to not die. And guess what? On top of not dying, your job is to go kill people. You have to kill people. And I don't care how angry and how much you hate somebody. It's it's going to be hard to kill somebody, let alone that be what your daily job is for six months or a year or however many tours or how long your tour is. Here's how I got started. Long story short, I met with a lady named Jan Friedman in Denver. A lady's about 70 years old, but she's one of the biggest supporters of veterans and the cause of, of de-tabooing, for lack of a better word, veteran suicide. So she hooked me up with We Are the Mighty, uh, Mission 22, TAPS, and all these nonprofits. And those guys introduced me through Facebook and other social media families. So by the time I started writing the script, I was interviewing 200 families. And then I was sending the dialogue to Judy. And Judy was saying, wow, this is amazing. This came from them. So just by talking to the families... Because to me, my depression, through the grace of God and through the grace of family, that, and another thing is, and you can be an answer to prayer. This is my little sidebar. A lot of times people say, well, I'll be praying for you. Well, not, a lot of times you're the answer to prayer. You just have to be that answer. So just seeing that it was the families and it was the family unit and it was the ones that didn't know exactly the red flags to look for, but I'm there no matter what. That's what made me passionate about this is because... Without my wife now, without Renee, my soul, I can't imagine going through depression alone. So seeing what all these families, we narrowed it down to about 50 families. And um, everything you see in the movie is real. It's authentic. And it's based on actual events. The only thing that's not true in the movie is uh, the main character, Jason, and the other character, Barry, were never friends. They never met each other. But in real life, they both existed. In real life, their situations both existed. So um, that was where the passion came from. It was like, wow, you guys don't have, you'll have everything in common because there's not one particular incident that caused the depression. It's not like Hollywood where, oh, well, I saw my best friend's leg get shot off or I saw a five-year-old girl with a bomb and I had to shoot her. It wasn't anything like that. 
Yeah, you know, and the thing is, I suppose where we come from, and I mean, you've got your experience of making the movie, and I've got my experience of living that life as an army brat and seeing the result of that PTSD. And my brothers, you know, at the moment, one of my brothers has gone to the Woodland Warrior Program in the UK, where they have this woodland area and they can go and camp out and go there for two days to, I think what they call recuperate, recalibrate, and re-engage. Because that's really what it is, is that, you know, it's so... The experience is just like it's off the scale, right? We're talking about something that you don't want to do, but you have to do. And actually what happens is you change as a personality. My dad said something very shocking to me when I was younger. He said, you know, it can be quite exciting at killing somebody. And I go, whoa, dad, like, did you really say that to me? But the way he was trying to explain it was when he was an aide in 1965, you know, and he knew that you go around a corner and you could be shot your adrenaline levels are so high. You're, 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 you know, like it's when you when you're on that roller coaster ride, that that high that you get. Yeah. He tried to explain that when you're shooting somebody and you're in the middle of something and you kill somebody, you can actually get that high as well, which just blew me away. It shocked me. Yeah. Shocked me so much, you know. It changes who you are, and it's you know you're you programmed, but I don't mean that in a negative way, but you're no. programmed in the military because, um, you have to be, you know, as a normal U.S not us but average joe citizen we don't think of things in terms like that you know pac-man was the biggest thing to killing i ever thought about because i'm killing all these ghosts but yeah and and you do have that endorphin because you survived a moment by taking out the bad guy yeah so yeah i get that so did you think you know after doing the movie did was it cathartic was it something that the the pet you know the families used as a vehicle was it something that they could to have something tangible to hold on after the event, after they lost their loved ones. Do you think it's helped that way? Uh, yes. Yeah. I say, I, I have two things I want to touch base on that. But the families, the families that were a part of this and are on the Facebook page, the out of the fight Facebook, you'll have to Google it or search it again. I'm not good with technology, but all of them that have watched the movie, nothing but praise. This was solid. And then their veteran friends that have come home they'll send me messages because they'll, they'll send me a Facebook request and like, you know, great movie. We thought this was spot on. Um, I think the only wasn't even a negative comment, but it was kind of an ironic comment. It came from a, a civilian, a civilian said, well, in the gun battle scenes, uh, the guns weren't loud enough. Maybe your sound guy could have done something with that. Other than that, it was a great film. But what's ironic is my armorer who brought in all the weapons. We used the same, even though they were blanks, we use the same loads that they use in the field, in the combat field. So and the way we filmed it, we filmed it combat style, like it's almost a documentary. So the sound was right there. The boom guy was right there in with the guns. So what he wanted was the Hollywood post sound effect where it's like, let's add all this extra audio that it's called Foley. Let's Foley in gunshots no we didn't do that we use the actual sound of what they hear because everything that you see in there being real when you see the combat scenes and the way we filmed them the only way to do that would be like i just told you so yeah the families are all uh this is great uh we had support from the gary sinise foundation liaison again for lack of a better word it was a in 2019, December 2019, we were supposed to have an event in New York where we were going to be screening our film for one of their events, but COVID boned us from that, so we weren't allowed to do it, so that shut that down. But just the fact that they saw it, they liked it, the Pentagon likes it, on, on the military side, they like it. Now, on production side, when the movie was over, and again, we're just you know local filmmakers shooting for three weeks. After the third week after we wrapped my crew and i especially my director of photography and i we we had to detox because we were so just drained by telling the story we were so humbled that wow okay for three weeks just making a movie i can't imagine six months actually being the person out in afghanistan or iraq and then coming home if if we have to go to the beach to detox because we shot another movie just to detox. I can't imagine what it's like for, for the for the heroes. I, I, just, I, just, I can't imagine. We're, I mean, I don't even have the words for that. I mean, wow. Okay, we made a movie. All right, we should be okay. You guys just survived and killed and saw people killed and saw friends killed. Uh, but, but you guys are not supposed to be weak. So it was just, it was just such a humbling experience 
after we made it. Wow. And, and and that's that's very vivid, you know, because you can imagine in the Second World War, and I want to briefly touch actually on your World War II movie that you're potentially going to be making as well. But in the Second World War, I think many of the heroes that came back, the veterans, had time to decompress on the ship back from Japan back to America or, you know, from America to the UK. They had three weeks to get their mind in order, you know, whereas what has happened really since the Vietnam War is that people literally come out of the theatre of war and they're straight back into good old U.S. downtown. And you're supposed to act normally. Yeah. <laughs> Give exactly. me a break. You know, you just, you just, human beings just can't do that. Well, they can on the face of it. But what it is, is you're, you're, you're like a kettle, aren't you? You're boiling and you're boiling to the point where you'll become a pressure cooker. And that's why these guys explode. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, I call it the um, back to the future. It's that space time continuum because... And, I, and I'm going to compare it to, to being a divorced dad, the other parent. When, when you're right here in whatever this 1985 space timeline or 2004, okay, you're this person and you love being this person. But then, all right, divorce, you're now this person. Or military war, you're now the theater of war, you're now this person. So there's no way when you come home that you are now this person from this space-time continuum because it's been broken. So now, even back to Carly... You know, there were times, yeah, as a dad, divorced dad, you 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 are that boiling kettle. And there's going to be times that you may yell or you may argue and it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. It's just that, wow, I have you for the next 48 hours and I may not see you again, depending on if your mom's mad at me, for another month or two. One, one year it was seven months that I didn't see her. I've, I've seen my girls less than 300 days from the time they were seven and four to the time they were each 18. That's less than one year of their lifetime that I've seen them. And so when you, you just are so angry and frustrated because it's things beyond your control and you don't want to be a controlled person. Yeah. You just want to have control over just me, just, just let me, and, and you can't go back to that. And so, yeah, when these people come back from, uh, from the, from the field of battle, yeah, on the surface, you can be the greatest guy, greatest girl in the world. But underneath, it's like, I have all this right here as a veteran, not me, but speaking on their behalf, that something at some point is going to blow. Now, it can be controlled, you know, just arguing, or it can be controlled or whatever it happens to be. And that's why in the movie, all of a sudden, he's a pill-popping alcoholic, because it doesn't work that way. Some people, it might, but for the most part, it's just, I have to adjust, let me adjust my way. So anyway, no, I'm glad you said that because that whole space-time continuum, no matter what trauma you've had in your life, you're no longer that person and you have to find a way to at least get back on track. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, we did point uh, touch on the point that you've got another movie that you're looking to get funding on, if I'm correct on that, and it's actually to do with the Battle of the Bulge from yes. 1944, 45. And it's, uh, and I hopefully I've got this, this is to do with a place in Belgium, is it Bastogne or Bastogne? Uh, Baston, Baston, I Baston, yeah, Baston. Baston. Mm-hmm. yeah, Baston. So tell me about that project, if you're allowed to just sort of yes. give us a kind of brief overview. How did you get interested in it? And I mean, how do you get funding for it as well? I'm really intrigued by this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so what got me interested in movies and Bastogne, my parents uh, raised me watching movies. We had a big laser disc back in the day. It looked like a record player that was inside this plastic case and you would slide it in. And then after an hour, you'd flip it over and slide it in again. So there's a movie called Stalag 17. Came out in 1953. William Holden it is a great movie and it was to be better than The Great Escape, because The Great Escape was too long. It's kind of the Kevin Costner version of um, of Tombstone, you know, when Kevin Costner <laughs> did uh, Wyatt Earp. It was way too long. Tombstone was better. Stalag 17 was better. And there was a character at the beginning of the movie named Manfredi. There was Manfredi and Johnson, and they were getting ready to escape, and they got killed. In my first movie, my main character was the fictional grandson of Manfredi, and he talked about World War II. But anyway, all that said is I love that movie. It's my favorite movie. But there's a scene where the character Blondie, they they had stolen a radio and headset, and they're transcribing what's going on in the war. And this is December. They're all prisoners of war in Germany. And they say, cut the road to Bastogne. Ever since then, my best friend at the time at the school I went to loved that movie also. So we would always quote lines, cut the road to Bastogne. 
that's what made me also a historian is I just loved history. I loved World War II history. So fast forward to now I'm a filmmaker. I watch Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is amazing. And the episode of Bastogne just gives me chills now because imagine, I guess that's the underdog in me. You're, you're Bastogne, if nobody knows the story, here's a group of Americans for 16 days stuck in Bastogne, France. All seven roads around them were cut by the Germans, so they couldn't get out. But we had to hold Bastogne because if the Germans came through, it's a different war. We, for 16 days, had no food. We ran out of food, ran out of ammunition. There were no drops because the cloud coverage was too low. We had no way of staying warm or anything like that, but we fought them off for 16 days. And what I think is funny, it's in Band of Brothers, but it's also in one of the books I'm reading. When Patton finally came in from the south on the last day of the battle, Easy Company said, you know what, we didn't need rescuing. I mean, they, you know, they did. But Easy Company was just so beaten down. It was like, you know what? You can take everything you want to, but you know what? We're still going to be in this fight. So that's where I wrote Bastogne from is I read a couple of books, looked at, looked at the episode of Band of Brothers, and it doesn't do it justice. It's a great episode, but it doesn't do it justice because it doesn't show that you guys were just getting slaughtered. So I wrote Bastogne based off of two books. It's all based on history. There's no Hollywood in it. It's all true. We're casting people like they did in, ba in Band of Brothers. We're casting people that look like the actual people they're portraying. So to get it funded is a different story. <laughs> the business of funding is simple. The business of funding is this. And then if anybody's listening that wants to be a filmmaker, here's how you get the films funded. All right. You find an actor that this is almost an inappropriate way because you can't use actors to get financing you, nobody wants their name to be pitched hey i've got a movie with you know john travolta okay i'll give you money for it so there's a dance that you have to do but he, here's how it works you have somebody attached to your project you can get pre-sales pre-sales are simply oh this guy's in your movie and this guy's the director and these are the producers and this is the style of movie it is overseas we think we can get you this much money so there'll be like 40 countries 45 countries that the sales agent will get pre-sales numbers then you get a loan based off those numbers or you take that to a distributor and say hey this is what they're being offered what can you give me and the distributor might say okay we'll give you some money up front to do this but then you shoot it in a tax friendly place probably not going to do bastone in alabama but if it was alabama 35%. I can sell that tax rebate for 90 cents on the dollar. So now I have money coming in from pre-selling the pre-sales and pre-selling the tax incentive. And then I go after equity or gap financing. So that's the business of finance. It's challenging, but it's normal. I mean, that's the business. Just like when you're in real estate, you have to go through everything to buy a house uh, and sell a house. So that's the business side. But what we're doing is we're thinking about my friend across the pond that lives in uh, Great Britain. He lives in London. Mm -hmm. He is going after funding over there, but there's a 50% tax rebate in Hungary and in Poland. And if we shoot it out there, then we can get probably 40% cash of what we need up front. And then the rest of it will be easy to get. So my thing now is that I'm looking at still scouting for places that look like Bastogne because what's weird about the Ardennes Forest is it's mountainous in all types of places, but Bastogne is relatively flat. Right. So we're still scouting for what looks like that. And we need the town that that is at the edge of the forest that looks like some of the houses that they have there. But um, so that's Bastogne. There you go. There you go. I didn't realize it was such a, an involved process, you know, and it's all about that kind of fine art of juggling, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a juggle and a dance. Trust me. I can imagine. I've got one final question and then I've got, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously conscious of time and your time. But when you when you go to write a script, OK, um, you, you said about doing your research and reading two books. How does... Steve Moon in his mind write the script after you after you've read the books. What what's the process? Is it is it something that's quite natural to you, or there's a, an automated sequence of events? How do you go about it? Uh, for me, and and it's probably a lot of writers also, but for me, it's uh, you have to be organic. You can set in your mind this is where I want this to go, but if it's especially if it's fiction, you want to follow where the character takes you. If it's nonfiction, like for Bastogne you have to kind of have what's the end goal. But for me as a writer, I let the story tell itself. So if I'm on a scene, I'm like, okay, this is what this character would do. Let the character 
do that. And I've learned that from being on so many of the other bigger shows, even if I'm not directing, if I'm like in the art department, I'm still watching what's going on. And I find it fascinating with like, and I say Travolta because I've worked with him a couple of times, great guy, but Travolta will look at a director and say, you know what? I don't think my character would do that. Let's try it this way. So I learned that everything is organic, even when you're writing, even when you're on set, because there's so many rewrites on set. You'd be amazed that, uh, oh, I'd like to own the script of, uh, you know, Grease. But guess what? Grease on film is probably not the same Grease that it was in the script because they change. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's you have to allow yourself to be organic. Let the scenes, let the characters dictate you, not the other way around. Otherwise, I think you get into... um, cheesy yeah for lack of a better word uh corny uh keep it honest keep it real and then you know like i'll tell my wife after i write a script i'm like i didn't know it was going to turn out that way because it's what would the characters do it, it's you're totally right about the organic because i've done a bit of writing myself poetry and writing a, you know like a bit of a novel oh nice and i don't know about you i get into that flow period where i just start going and it just happens exactly and it's the weirdest experience it, like where did that come from you know? <laughs> but you know it it, it 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 takes you there it's like you're on the adventure as much as the audience will be when they see it because you're like oh wow what's he gonna do now what, what's gonna happen next yeah and i love it and i i think the first time i ever experienced it and it sounds really weird is when i wrote two eulogies one for my father and one for my gran right uh, both from glasgow scotland had amazing backgrounds to their life and i remember the night before uh, going to the, the funeral I, I had to do this bloody eulogy and i was crapping my pants you know yeah. and i said right dave just put pen to paper and i wrote eight pages like in an hour i wrote eight pages and i'm thinking where did that come from so there is there's something you can dig in deep can't you organically in yourself that will do that wouldn't it oh yeah but you've got to open your mind you've got to open your mind is that right uh, exactly open your mind your spirit because all that to me it's not me you know, to me, it's like an orchestra leader. It's like, I, I didn't do this. This, <laughs> this was, this was the orchestra. All I did was wave this little plastic baton. <laughs> so, um, I love that. I love it. Yeah. But, um, see, I could talk to you all day. Like there's so much, and I really want to come back for another episode and especially about the divorce characters and the situations with those movies. And we can definitely touch base on that. I got to ask you this question. It's burning like a, a hole in the seat of my chair here. Steve Moon, such a, a unique name. No relation to Keith Moon of the Rolling Stones by any chance. Uh, none at all. I have been asked that. In fact, I'm probably more related to you because our people came in from England. We had an oh. E on the last name. It was Moon with an E. I'd never heard of that. In 1787, we uh, came to Pennsylvania and dropped the E and migrated eventually to Tennessee and then to Alabama. Um, just before we go, where can we find out a little bit more about your uh, your movies? Out of the Fight, you can watch it on iTunes, Amazon Prime, uh, Vudu, Hulu, and all of those. Again, I'm not. But here's what I wanted to say most importantly. If you're watching this movie and you're expecting Hollywood, don't. And I don't mean because it's cheaper than Hollywood, because low-budget films do well. Boys Don't Cry was a low-budget film and won, won an Oscar for it. What I'm saying is go into this movie knowing that everything that you're watching is real. It's documented sort of because we shoot a couple of scenes documentary style and that's another thing i want to touch base on the very beginning of the movie is if you if you go to youtube and you search marja marines you will see basically our opening scene of the movie because we wanted to keep everything 100 percent real 100 percent honest uh every battle scene that you see in the movie was done by combat veterans from mississippi with the exception of the main actor. But everything else was done. It wasn't scripted. In fact, I had hurt my back that day and I had to lay down. So I was directing, looking at Video Village, looking at the monitor like this, while my director of photography that I was telling about, Joe Walker, was directing the scenes, but he was working with the veterans. And we were like, whatever you guys would say, whatever you guys would do, here's, here's what I want to see as a director, but I want to see it as you guys would see it. So if you ever saw the movie 1917, there's a style of filming, a style of directing. I call it a wonder. It's a one take where you just one take for the whole scene or whatever. So that opening scene is a wonder. It, it, and and we, we shot it from behind the main character because we wanted the audience to see for the first time what the main character sees for the first time. And at the end of the movie, 
when you don't really know what's going on with the main character, but his wife's there. And Jordan Jude did an amazing job as Emily. I think she carried the film more than anybody else because it was a great ensemble cast. But Jordan played the, the wife that supported. And at the end of the movie, we also do a wonder. It was the first scene that we shot. It shows her in her home by herself in her house, laundry basket, cleaning up the kitchen. Now she goes to tuck her daughter in and their daughter's toys are everywhere. Then she has to go finish laundry. There's more in the bathroom and she just has a breakdown. I didn't want to compartmentalize each of those shots because that spoon feeds the audience. Oh, she's this or she's this. I wanted them to see what she was going through as she was going through. So all that said is I just want when the audience is watching this, know that everything you see is real. It actually happened. The other water scene that we shot is it's a real newscaster. Her name is Andrea Lindenberg. She's in Birmingham. She did the scene where she gets some news and she has to give the news on air. She doesn't want to do this. I could have, again, compartmentalized those shots, but that sets it up. I would rather the audience see, oh, this is how the news works. She gets a, a piece of paper from her friend and she's like, oh, I don't want to read this. And you follow her as she walks and she goes to her microphone, kind of like where you're sitting. Hi, Andrea Lindenberg, I'm live on the air. And then she has to give the bad news. So everything that you watch, don't expect Hollywood, but you're not going to be disappointed. Bring your Kleenex and um, everything that everything you're seeing is real. And we, we're just honored that, you know, the veterans were a part of this and appreciate the movie. I've got one final question, which I'd love to ask you. And I ask all my audience uh, members, and if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know what it probably is going to be. But if you were 18 again, what would you tell yourself? Is my wife listening to this? <laughs> uh, if I was 18, um, go with your heart. Go with your gut. Um, you don't have to follow society's rules, and I don't mean break the rules, but... Um, I wouldn't have gone to college by any means. It took me five and a half years to graduate because I just didn't know. I mean, I was smart. I mean, I, I had a scholarship. I graduated when I was 17. I didn't know how to study. So, um, uh, and again, my parents just not being there, you know, it would have been nice, you know, to teach me how to study. You know, this is all new to me. So they were like, you know, just graduate. That's all you have to do is just graduate. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, yeah, if I was 18, 17 to do it over again, is follow your heart, follow your instinct. And, and that's it. I mean, yeah, because my choices would have been a lot better <laughs> if I would have done that. Because then if you make the mistakes, at least you made them by doing what was you instead of what society tells you is you. And, and that's lovely. You summed up that so well. And also you do them when you're earlier, so you have time to rectify those mistakes. That's the really great thing about it, isn't it? No kidding. You're so right. I think about that every day. But, you know, what I love what you're doing at the moment, though, is that you're, you know, I'm, I'm a similar age to you as well, is that you're following your passion. You're following those areas of, of you know, the film industry that doesn't tackle those areas very much, those subjects. Yep. Or if they do tackle them, they, they glorify them rather than being real about it. And that's what I love what, what you're doing. You're, you're helping people. And you're, you're going to continue to help people because you've just got that love in your heart. And I love seeing that. It just comes through the screen, but it comes through for everything you do. And I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for reaching out to me because it meant a lot when I got that text yesterday. It really did. Awesome. Well, thank you. And have a good day. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Steve Moon, producer and director from Alabama, getting your story on film in a lightning and truthful way. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America. <laughs>